So here we are at another Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the entire year. And it's beautiful outside. We're surrounded by loved ones, our caring community, but something feels different, doesn't it? These are unstable times, but they're not terrible times. This is not the 1930s or the 1940s, but nonetheless, the current events, they make us feel very unsettled. We are standing at what feels like the edge of a cliff. And it feels as if the storm that we saw on the horizon just a few short years ago is beginning to hover over our city and our country. Two years ago, we were all looking east to Syria and Europe as borders were melting away and the largest group of refugees since World War II were flooding west. As we looked past the increasing terrorist attacks in Europe and Brexit, the storm continued its march westward, touching on the shores of America and then spreading across our country. And now today, the storm, it's no longer just coming from the east, but it's beginning to come from the west. As North Korea threatens us with nuclear war and us threatening them with total annihilation. While on our land, our Latino neighbors who are dreamers are being threatened with deportation. And most experts agree that man-made global warming is at least partially responsible for the storm after storm phenomena that we continually are told these are once in 500 year events. And with that, the US pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords. White supremacists now feel comfortable enough to march without hoods and have been given moral equivalency with the people who oppose them. And with all of this instability swirling around us, we arrive at Yom Kippur, the holiest day of each year that acts like an eye in the storm. Yom Kippur is a place where there's an eerie calm and a silence that allows the deepest questions stirring in our souls to surface. And that calm, it allows us to stop reacting and instead to begin reflecting on where we are and most importantly, where we want to go. For we know that when we get to break fast tonight, we will leave the eye of our existential storm and the unpredictable winds of our time will pick back up again. The question that has been stirring in me, honestly the question that has kept me up at nighttime, is what is the Jewish spiritual philosophy for living in times such as these? Now, before we can drill down to what does Judaism say about living in precarious times, we must first understand Judaism's general spiritual philosophy. And in a sentence, it's making the mundane holy. Or on the flip side, revealing holiness that was always there, we just had to reveal this. And you can see this across almost everything that we do. Think about Shabbat. It's a completely artificial measurement of time. Because a week, it doesn't really exist. A year exists. It's relative to where we are in relation to the sun. A month exists. We can see the tides change and we can see the moon in the sky. But a week? Totally arbitrary. If you fell asleep, like Rip Van Winkle and you woke up in 24 hours, you could tell what time of year you were in and where you were in the month. But you would have no idea what day of the week it was. So then along came Judaism. 
And we said, one day was sacred. And we're going to call that one day Shabbat. And the rest of the days are not. And this incredible thing happened. Everyone bought into the system. (laughs) Suddenly, it's real. And now if you ask anyone, is Wednesday different than Saturday? Everyone would say, yes, it's not. (laughs) Unless you make it different. We actually invented the weekend. We probably should have patented that, but afterthought. We we revealed that time could be sacred and could feel different. And we do this with our most basic action. We classified some foods as sacred and others as not, kosher and not kosher. We have a blessing for everything. Not that the blessing changes the external world, it changes us. When I say the blessing over the bread, the bread does not change, but my perception of it does. In life, we are presented with a binary option that either this life is meaningful and sacred or nihilism, the claim that it's meaningless and mundane. Now, either one of these can be completely true, depending on which camp you choose to join. And Judaism chooses a side. It says that there is a definitive answer. And this is rare for a religion that is deeply comfortable in living in mystery and seeing the world in many shades of gray. This discussion is not one of them. There is no gray area here. If life is meaningful and sacred, then everything is sacred. From time to food to bodily functions to the words that we say, And so if this is the case, when we are approached with darkness and living in times that can feel dislocating, those two are also sacred. Rabbi Harold Kushner, he wrestled with one of the most profound dislocations any person can experience, leading to his landmark book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Rabbi Kushner's son was diagnosed at three years old with a degenerative genetic disease, and he was told that his son would only live until his early teens. He died at 14 years old. For many years, Kushner, he asked, why? Why did this happen to my son? But eventually, Rabbi Kushner realized that why froze his perspective in the past making it nearly impossible to live in the present and to move towards a better future. As Jews, we do not ask, why do bad things happen? No. What we do ask is when. When bad things happen, what can we do to squeeze light out of them? And this is not to say that we want or we desire bad things to happen. And Kushner is clear on this. He writes... I'm a more sensitive person, a more effective pastor, a more sympathetic counselor because of Aaron's life and death. And I'd give it up in a second if I could have my son back. We cannot choose. We can only try to cope. Our power, our agency, it comes from choosing to go on living and making blessings out of what is around us. These precarious times, we may wish were different, but as Jews, we don't accept them. We turn them into blessings. If we are wise enough and reflective enough, 
and we begin to ask the right questions, we may just begin to see that these times are a profound gift. A gift we may have wished we didn't have, but one which we are obligated not to waste. Because we do not get to choose when we live, but we do get to choose how we live. This is not the first time in our history when Jews who were deeply integrated into society with power and connection looked up and realized what may have felt sudden, that they were living in precarious times. In the book of Esther, in the fourth chapter, we learn that the government has acquiesced to the anti-Semites' demands and legitimized them by ordering the extermination of all Jews. And Esther was shocked that her government would create such a discriminatory edict against a group that was so integrated into society. I mean, even the king had married a Jew. There was a Jew in the Persian White House. And Esther, she had reached this place of power, a place of connection and access that was unprecedented in Jewish history. And it's in that time of confusion, under threat, while in a place of power and access, that Mordechai asks her a haunting question. Who knows? Perhaps you have attained this position of power for just such a crisis. The thing about Esther is that she does not reply or react right away. It takes her some time. The new reality that she is finding herself in is one that she had never expected. So there's a pause in the story from when he asks her this until she actually responds. And I wonder what she thought that night as she went back to her room all alone with Mordechai's challenge swirling in her mind as she leaned against her window and she looked up at the stars, same stars that her ancestors looked at, same stars that Sarah and Rebecca looked at. And I imagine that she kept saying to herself over and over again, what should I do? What should I do? And it was right then when a deafening and a still quiet voice, it began to stir in her. The same voice that stirred in Abraham, the same voice that stirred in every single generation that came before her. That what it meant to be one of the chosen people was not that God from above was going to come down and intervene. It was not that she was any better than anyone else around her. What made her chosen was choosing to step into the moment of time that she was lucky enough to be alive in. And then, using everything she had learned from childhood to maturity and youth to age, from innocence to awareness and ignorance to knowing, from her weakness to now recognizing her strength, she saw in that night, in that stillness, in the eye of the storm, that this life that she was on, it was a sacred pilgrimage. Her birth was her beginning, and her death would be her destination, and she had no control over either one of these. But her journey, that was a sacred pilgrimage. And it was in that moment that she stepped up and saw that the position that she found herself in was difficult, challenging, 
and a gift. That is the Jewish spiritual philosophy. And that is the foundation for how we tackle precarious times. When I hear this question from Mordechai, it's as if he's whispering to us through the millennia, right here in San Francisco. Because we too have reached a place of power, connection, access, integration that is unprecedented in Jewish history. In the city, that is increasingly being seen as the center of the world. And we just happen to be alive right now and right here in this position. So just as Mordechai asked Esther if this is her moment as a Jew, it's our duty to reflect in the quiet of Yom Kippur. What are we using our own position of power for? We've used our power here in unbelievable ways. We have seen problems and we've tackled them. And I don't want to get up here and say, oy vey, there's so much to do, I don't know where to start. Because this is not new for us as a community. We have stepped up and we have engaged in profound ways over the past few years. When blacks were feeling isolated because of constant shootings, we formed a Jewish black unity group. When we needed to help the refugees, we did. We collected thousands upon thousands of pounds of clothes. We went to the shores of Greece. We even fostered refugees in our own homes here in San Francisco. We did that. We needed to be the institution that ended family homelessness in San Francisco. When just last year, it reached this epidemic where we found out that one in 25 kids in our public school were now homeless. And in one year, one year, we have nearly completely succeeded in our goal. Over 220 of you adopted families and helped one quarter of all San Francisco homeless families off the street. Our synagogue generated such a wave of energy that the five-year goal of raising $30 million to end family homelessness has nearly been complete. In the next few weeks, we're going to have a huge announcement. The city, the Bay Area, the nation, they look at us. When we come together collectively, we are Esther. All of this, it's awesome. It's just awesome in the truest sense of the word. You see, during the past two years, what each of us in this community did for the refugees, for African-American neighbors, and the homeless is the prescription for taking darkness and making it light. It's transforming what is not holy and making it holy. And now, on this Yom Kippur, let us reflect on these accomplishments in the quiet of the storm and deeply ask ourselves, are we making our journey a sacred pilgrimage? Religion was built for this moment. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, he writes, that religion is an answer to man's ultimate questions. The moment we become oblivious to ultimate questions, religion becomes irrelevant and its crisis sets in. The primary task of philosophy of religion is to rediscover the question to which religion is an answer. This moment that we are lucky enough to live in, it opens the gate wide to the ultimate question. 
why am I here? Why are we here? We are here to turn the mundane into the holy, to turn the dark into the light, to reveal the awesome sacredness that has the potential to burst forth in every single moment. 2017 is an opportunity presented to us unlike any other moment in the history of Judaism. But how do we do this? What do we meditate on during this Yom Kippur to ensure we are rising to the challenge of chosenness in this finite time that we have left? We begin by examining a part of our lives that many of us consider separate from our life. But 2,000 years ago, Rabbah, one of our Babylonian Talmudic sages, wrote in the Talmud that the first question that we're going to be asked when we die is, were you honest and ethical in your business practices? Odd question. Why is this the first? Because our business is where we spend the majority of our life. And if you are unethical for eight hours a day, that is the most important thing. What do we do at our work? It's not separate from our values or our life. Your work is your life. There is no such thing as a work-life balance. Your life is finite. What do we spend the majority of our conscious hours doing is work. So do not divorce the two. The meditation today is how do you use your position you've been given in your workplace and make use of your time and position for something sacred and not wasted because you have a choice, nihilism or sacredness. There's no gray here. When we do this, work suddenly takes on a new meaning, just like the challah takes on a new meaning when you alter your perception of it with a blessing. Rabbi does not say that the first question you will be asked is about your business practice because he's concerned with business. He's concerned with how you spend the majority of your focused, conscious time. If you are not spending the bulk of your time working, it's still incumbent upon you to elevate your journey and to use it to mold and to shape our society to how it should be. Judaism provides the framework for turning the mundane into a time of intentionality and purpose. If you're a parent, I hope to God you're not wasting this moment. This moment is such a gift. We have been teaching our kids in the abstract about what it means to be a citizen and a mensch. This is an experiential learning moment you will never get back. So don't waste it. Because we don't know what's coming. And as we get older and as we get wiser, we realize how little we actually know. So to predict the future is impossible. But to lay the seeds in our children and talk about the world that we dream of and that we hope for, that's our job. Talking with your children about what is happening and how they and you have a responsibility to fix it, from taking care of the environment to standing up for your neighbors and for yourself. Now, honestly, I would prefer not to have to teach my kids about global warming, about North Korea, misogyny, anti-Semitism, racism, but we are confronted with it. So now what can I do to make this moment holy? We sit in the eye of the storm reflecting and maybe hoping that the wind does not return and that things will just be calm 
But we must remember what Wilbur Wright wrote in his diary in 1900. No bird soars in a calm. Each of us has the ability to see the surrounding wind as a curse or we can see the chaos and uncertainty of the winds surrounding us as a medium for us to soar. These precarious times are laden with potential blessings if we take advantage of this moment. Today, on Yom Kippur, as we sit, just as Esther sat, in silence, and we reflect on our life, our death, our past, our present, and our future, in the stillness of the eye of the storm, we realize that we never had control over our birth in the beginning or our death as our destination. But what we do control, what has defined our Jewish spiritual philosophy for millennia is making this journey a sacred pilgrimage. And then we gird our wings and we aim head first into the wind and we soar because it's incumbent upon us not to waste our precious time here. Because who knows? Who knows? Perhaps you have attained this position for this exact moment in this exact city, and we better not waste it.